Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. My guest today is Olga Drenda. Olga is an essayist and translator. Since 2013, she has curated the Facebook page Duchologia, which focuses on artifacts from what now seems like the distant past, that is the 1990s, uh, which is Poland's period of great social transformation. The blog page has now 22,000 followers. In 2018, Duchologia became a book and it was nominated for an award from Krytyka. Drenda has a new book on uh, called Virobi, Pomysłowsz Bokunami, or Products, Ingenuity Around Us. And her latest book, which came out in November of 2020, which is The Book of Love, which is a debate in many ways between love and reason. This was written with Małgorzata Halber. So Olga Drenda, my guest today, welcome. Hello. I'm happy to be your guest today. Oh, we're glad to have you. So I guess the way to start out is by asking you what fascinates you about the 1990s. You were born in 1984. So this is not an era of your own adulthood. Uh, yes, it is. It is a blurry memory. And I can say that, in fact, it has begun as a blurry memory, which I wanted to uh, maybe put in a sharper focus. Um, well, uh, I've graduated from anthropology in Krakow and uh, during our course uh, with Professor Dariusz Czaja dedicated to the anthropology of memory, uh, I have become interested in the subject of um, distortions uh, in uh, like uh, remembering public events via child's memory. Because uh, during uh, field research, we were supposed to um, uh, conduct a survey um, among uh, more or less our peers um, dedicated to, uh, well, certain, uh, certain facets, certain aspect. Uh, of their earliest memories, and I was interested in uh, how they have, uh, how they, how they had uh, like preserved memory of public events uh, that were happening around them, or uh, the news uh, mediated or not by the media, but also talked about, uh, discussed by the adults. Uh, and uh, how they made sense of the wider world. I was not interested in any of their personal memories, uh, but I was interested in uh, how they have uh, been trying to uh, understand like wider context, uh, especially uh, mediated by television and uh, new, media, new media introduced to Poland back then, so the video technology and satellite TV. Uh, and it was 2005 
a few years later, I have learned about the context of uh, the, the, uh, the the context of ontology, but I have arrived at it not via philosophy, not uh, directly uh, via Jacques Derrida, but uh, via music criticism. So Simon Reynolds and uh, Mark Fisher's uh, writings about music, precisely. Well, I, you know, one of the things that really struck me about the blog. First of all, uh, there's so much to unpack here. But one of the things that really struck me is how visceral so many of these memories are. So one of the things you posted I don't know, a few weeks ago was a picture of a, a PKS train car. And, mm -hmm. and the minute I saw that picture, I could smell it. I knew exactly that sort of mix of cheap Ukrainian cigarettes and body odor and mixed with a small overtone of ham usually. Mm -hmm. And, and, I could immediately smell it. I knew the texture of the seats, you know, that kind of prickly texture of the nylon seats. And, um, and you pick objects that have, I think for many people, that kind of common shared visceral response. These are public, these are items that we shared in public as part of a publicly experienced life. How, do, how have people reacted to you for, for these things that hit, them. they must hit people very strongly. Yes, yes, but I wanted to avoid, um, especially while writing the book, I wanted to avoid irony and nostalgia because these are the, the, the two, well, biggest traps when you are talking about past or the recent past. I was interested uh, the most, uh, just to briefly come back to the previous question and to link it with, with this one, uh, in uh, why do we, uh, as Poles tend to remember uh, uh, the fairly recent past in quite a blurry way so that uh, uh, many people were, for example, confusing decades or they have become blurred uh, in, in, in their minds as some kind of, well, relative past. Uh, and and I, I wanted to uh, I perform some kind of archaeological task, but also why so many of these memories seem to like look in our minds uh, at least according to the people I have surveyed uh, and many uh, people who come to uh, my Facebook page, like a glitchy videotape. But also, like a glitchy, like a glitchy videotape. Yes. Yes. You mean in that sort of broken up, static infused quality? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So as as if the memory had some kind of technical glitches built in. So uh, it it was really really fascinating for me that. Uh, it seems to be kind of linked to the period that uh, the medium associated with the period, uh, like in the VHS of, tape. Exactly, you okay. remember. Yes, that 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 many people remember um, of, uh, things from the eighties and the nineties as it as if it was VHS tape or uh, like a particular photographic print that. Um, like infuses everything with kind of golden glow because of certain chemical that was used uh, back then for developing images. So it's, people are fond of it, but it's also kind of grainy. That is, they don't remember it as part of a historical narrative. It doesn't fit into the story yet. 
Exactly, exactly. And it, it is, as you said, it is very visceral that, that people share many, well, it has some kind of multimedia quality because apart from like the memory of the fact, they, they often recall the touch of something or the scent of something as if everything was somehow uh, like more uh, intensive to the senses. Well, can... it's interesting that you're talking about the process of historicization, right? That mm -hmm. I've always said that there is a black window that runs about 20 years behind us where events are in the past, but they're not history yet. Yes. So yes. you're investigating this window and, and you're saying that people remember it in a very fragmentary way, that they don't have a consistent explanation or narrative for it. Exactly. Yes. But the thing is that there was already a very, very quick follow up narrative, which you have experienced during your stay in Poland, that there was the legend, the mythology of 1989, uh, which was like regaining freedom. And um, uh, also it was focused on the positives only. And I think that this myth was very, very strong uh, and it has continued uh for a long period of time like fueling hopes and i think that uh, regardless uh, of the actual conditions that people lived in here many of them had their minds somehow in the dream of the future that was supposed to arrive sometime soon that poland will become a normal country so to say that they, uh, they they used to repeat that that we're in a transitional period but we have to be uh, patient and we have to work hard because it eventually is going to be uh, rewarded mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, well I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to recreate uh, uh, the, like commonly heard opinions in the media but also uh, from various uh, various private people I have I have heard as a teenager mainly. So you say you're trying to avoid irony and nostalgia and that these are traps. What, what do you think uh, is a trap about nostalgia? It sounds like a lot of the people who are interested in your work are, are in some way very nostalgic for their own hopes for the future. I think so. I think, I think that this is uh, what a lot of nostalgia is about. Uh, but what I was trying to um and i think that uh people who come to my page and readers of the book uh are well aware of is that uh it, that nostalgia really blurs the edges as uh, uh as as very well described by Svetlana Boim in her works that uh, uh it it creates its own uh mythologies so um, being aware of, of, of those traps, uh, I, was, I was always trying to, well, present something uh, with certain phenomena as uh, both kind of resonating with, with warmth, but not only uh, remembering uh, how uh, the very same things might have been equally awful, like for example, uh, living in a block of flats. Yeah, one of the pictures you posted recently was of a milk bar in Gliwice. And mm -hmm. um, for those listeners who are not familiar with the institution of the milk bar, it was 
a cafeteria that didn't serve meat, but served sort of cheap, hot dishes um, that you could go in and eat for very little money in um, basically no ambiance whatsoever. <laughs> um, they were not famed for their decor. Um, so maybe you can t tell us a little bit, unpack the milk bar for me. How mm -hmm. is the milk bar exactly what you're talking about? This thing that was at the time kind of awful, but now seems pretty great. Yes, yes. I think that I have to admit my, that, that um, I haven't been to a milk bar until I was uh, a university student. So, uh, yes, it took me quite a while. And I remember that when I was a few years old, uh, I lived in Katowice. Uh, and I remember that during a walk uh, with my grandma, uh, I noticed a milk bar. And I, I, was, I was very fond of milk. And I think that I thought that it must be a place where they sell like milkshakes or uh, puddings or some some kind of milky desserts that I was really really fond of but uh, my grandma told me that no no you're not supposed to go there like they 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 serve awful things and uh, all of them contain salmonella because like salmonella was a was a, a huge uh, problem in the late 80s uh, due to unfortunately well lack of lack of hygiene in many uh, um, uh, like gastronomy so uh, I, I remember having this strong association that oh, no, you better stay away. And I think that only uh, in my university years, so in the early 2000s, I have learned that it, it might be basically a place where you can eat uh, very cheaply, very quickly, but also uh, it gives you a certain kind of satisfaction because it has this wholesome quality that all the food is, uh, well, it is quite predictable. Uh, it is quite heavy, it's hearty. So you eat pierogi, like the flour-based dishes that also uh, are, are usually uh, based in uh, fat sauces or uh, everything has extra fat and sugar. So uh, it, it gives you like this quick nutrition boost. You also have to eat very quickly because people are behind you in a queue. Uh, but uh, at least back in the day, it cost you almost nothing. So uh, I, I thought that many people were seeking comfort in milk bars, that it had some, well, like a cheaper version of grandma's food. Absolutely. I remember, I remember being in a milk bar where I saw cockroaches um, and ah. still feeling very fond about these, this giant plate of warm pierogi because you walked out so full of fat and carbohydrates that, you know, you felt quite happy leaving. It was warm on a cold day. And so I think it's interesting to me that the milk bar for so many people has become this iconic representation of, of um, the PRL, that, um, that it was awful and cheap, but you left kind of full and warm and that was a good thing. And, and people have this now very nostalgic, very happy view of state socialism that's channeled through the image of the milk bar. I think that good design plays a certain role as well because usually they had interesting typography and they had uh, good furniture inside. 
uh, that was mass production, but uh, really high quality. Uh, and uh, the plates with particular like SPOEM trademark with the state state cooperative uh, uh, like responsible for uh, for milk bars uh, in the PRL era. Uh, and uh, I think that certain uh, like trademark designs that were similar more or less uh, everywhere, uh, people tend to uh these days they they, they tend to uh choose uh, those milk bars that look like the prl are not stylized but the ones that haven't changed much like for example tourista in Szczecin uh, or uh, barsade in warsaw i know that uh whenever i post uh, a milk bar related something on, on Duhologia, then people immediately uh, post the recommendations on what to eat there and what to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's such, again, it's such a public shared experience that almost everybody, I think except you, um, everybody had been there. Everybody knew what that was like, like McDonald's yeah. maybe for an American. Yes, yes, I think so. Or or I think like the 1950s cafeteria, because they were so immediately recognizable that you had these typical seats. Uh, and I think that uh, milk bars had this uh, like immediately recognizable design. So I think that uh, it, 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 it may be resonates with similar nostalgia. <laughs> You said that that in addition to nostalgia being a trap, irony is a trap. Why is irony a trap and, and why does irony come into it? Mm -hmm. Duhologia is remarkably non-ironic. I, I think it's quite nostalgic sometimes, but it's almost never ironic. Yes, because I, I think I think that I um, I became a bit tired with uh, irony because I thought that uh, in Poland, it was a bit like a tool of self-defense in the 90s and uh, in the early days of the internet as well. That uh, I, I thought that um, it was so, like a meta-language that forced everybody to immediately like enter a competition. And somehow it was like uh, playing chicken. So- uh, How is it like playing chicken? Uh, that uh, everybody has to stay on guard all the time and nobody can tell that they are feeling actually hurt or confused or they don't understand the joke uh, because it will turn out that, well, they, they, they lose. So everybody has to like well, uh, live up uh, to uh, probably, well, constantly edgier humor. And I think that I became tired of that and uh, I enjoyed when like trans for new sincerity arrived in Poland. Uh, and uh, I, I thought I thought that it was really like a, a breath of fresh air because uh, I uh, was considering irony as uh, a part of uh, that whatever language you were using in Poland was in its undercurrent, uh, confrontational, competitive, and aggressive. Mm -hmm. That I, I think that people were entering this mode because, uh, well, the reality of living in the 90s and early 2000s was very competitive and aggressive. 
Um, but it's, then, it's, yeah, it's interesting that one of the things you find out when people deploy irony is that you, the, if you like the things you like, you find out it's not cool to like them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even though everybody likes them. Everybody likes milk bars, but it's not cool to just like milk bars. You have to sort of ironically like milk bars, which means that you recognize that it's not cool to like what you like. Yes, so I, I, I really welcome like the wholesomeness and sincerity uh, as, a, as a thing, especially on the internet, because well, when I was in my late teens and I started using the internet, I have recognized very early on that whatever happens, don't show that you've been hurt. Mm-hmm. And I became at some point, I, I became really, really tired of that. So uh, I thought, uh, well, it wasn't irony. Uh, I have to add that it wasn't this kind of irony like uh, in America, the Generation X, uh, like uh, grunge era irony, which I thought was in a way like uh, I understood it as self-compassion more that uh, okay I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loser compared to my parents generation but I'm okay with that, mm-hmm. that uh, and uh, in Poland it was it was quite the opposite that it was like really aggressive banter I'd say from people who thought that they were better than the previous generations uh, probably yes probably yes better than the previous generation and their peers alike <laughs> so one of the things that you post a lot of, I noticed, is things that were in the 90s brand new for people. So frozen French fries was one I saw, or um, Dutch cheese was another one I noticed. So, so these, these items that were new and that people thought at the moment were sort of surprisingly wonderful, frozen food. Yes. What is it about those kinds of items that really attracts you? The thing is that uh, with this uh, frozen fries, I remember that it was a recent post. The surprising thing is that uh, it was a press ad from the 70s. Oh, from the but, 70s? Yes. And this is the most surprising thing there because people uh, on, on the Hologia ask, have we really had frozen fries or uh, dishwashers? back in the 70s. And yes, there was like a Polish dishwasher and uh, a Polish frozen foods. Uh, but I think that sometimes they were uh, either really short runs or they were, uh, they were available only for a short period uh, during uh, Edward Gerek's era, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, like had uh, like a short window of consumerism and availability of imported goods or Polish equivalents of imported goods. It's, it was when uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi were produced in Poland as well. Uh, so, um, and this is the period which is actually remembered by people uh, from my parents' generation with great nostalgia, that it was like uh, luxury socialism. Luxury socialism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, so the, if, uh, I, I knew that uh, if, if someone was in their 20s, uh, like in the early, early 70s, uh, then they have very, very good memories of, of, of those followed up by very deep economic crisis and the Marshall law. So um, this is why uh, many people uh, 
kind of forgot that uh, uh, that, that there was like the period of plenty followed up by a longer, way longer period of poverty. And I, I think I think that yes, uh, I, I think that it comes from a really strong belief that all the PRL era was like the eighties. And and this contrast between an era of luxury socialism and an era of strong deprivation must make the nostalgia for the era of luxury socialism even stronger. Yes, yes. And people are very, very surprised that uh, these things were actually available uh, before uh, 89. So they, uh, well, I, I have no experience of the 1970s, but I believe that probably Poland was a bit closer to, I don't know, than Yugoslavia mm-hmm. in terms of quality of life. One of the other things I noticed that you post is... Um... A lot of, I'm trying to figure out how to describe them. There there are things like dance videos or aerobics videos. Um, There's one that you posted fairly recently, which was uh, Magda's Superdance Erotica Popolsku. Um, So a kind of of blend between disco polo and soft porn. Um, And so... I, I think what's really interesting about them is that these are things that seemed really, really hot in the early 90s. The big mm-hmm. hair, the high cut leotards, you know, there was a kind of new erotics in the 90s because erotica had been not quite so public or so easily obtained before then. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what fascinates you about the history of erotica and and why you do this kind of an archaeology of desire oh i think i think that this is actually not my uh, specialization uh, even though as a part of my research uh, obviously erotica appears there uh, quite interestingly, recently I uh, I have read a book dedicated to that subject only by Eva Stusińska. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, I am more interested in the subject of uh, erotica as aspirational lifestyle. So um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, first Polish soap opera called Labirincie. No. Uh, from uh, it, it was on Polish TV from 1988, I think until 91, I guess so. And uh, it was about like a group of young scientists uh, working on like development of some kind of new generation medications, uh, and obviously having like uh, many personal complications on the end with uh, uh, it it is I think quite realistic uh, in terms of uh, representing reality and it has uh, many political uh, subtext in the dialogue so it's it's really interesting thing to uh, to, to, to rewatch that it, it really remains um, up to date and not detached from reality but the thing I have spotted was that in the early episodes in uh, 88, in all prestigious offices, so in the TV studio, in the doctor's office or everywhere, they have calendars with nudes. And uh, it was seen, I remember that from my childhood as well, that uh, a visit to uh, I, uh, some neighbor who uh, was a 
private entrepreneur in 89 or something. And uh, he had a calendar like this as well, I think with Cicciolina. And um, I recall that it really was uh, like nudity in general uh, was seen as some kind of mark of luxury and prestige that uh, some kind of like professionally produced uh, erotic photography was seen uh, as a mark of aspirational lifestyle. And in 89, all these calendars were replaced by landscapes. So <laughs> it became like, like white socks worn by uh, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They, from something aspirational and seen as luxury, uh, they have become uh, like perceived as something uh, trashy. Yeah. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. As the sort of ethos, the, the Protestant ethic of, of global business culture seeped into Poland, things that were seen originally as sort of prestigious because they were foreign imports in a lot yes, of ways. Like absolutely. pornography itself was a, a kind of a foreign import in those days. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden they were seen as, as just hopelessly ignorant that you were just showing what kind of a rube you were if you were were doing that and and of course now there's this drive to purge any kind of erotics out of the business world that that we see all these um movements like the me too movement for example which is Mm -hmm. aimed at eliminating sexual harassment by eliminating any kind of erotics between Mm -hmm. people in a business context Mm-hmm. Which, which, which I think uh, in, in Poland, uh, I think must be seen, well, I've been working on my own mainly for a long time, so uh, I'm, I'm not uh, up to date with, uh, like, for example, office contexts, but uh, I know that uh, for a long time, uh, actually, it has been... Uh, a big problem, but it was related to the dynamics of power, that if someone in high position, in, in high ranks was uh, was basically believing that they are like omnipotent and that uh, the employees uh, are basically like their property, including their bodies. So uh, I, I, think, I think that it was... Uh, for a, for a long time, fairly commonplace, actually, like cases of harassment that were difficult to prove. And I think that probably, like, uh, maybe even exaggerated safety measures are seen as an antidote to that. Yeah, absolutely. I remember in the 90s, in the Polish factory where I worked, that there was a vice president who would put porn on his secretary's computer screen. So every time she got to work and logged on, she got some sort of really pornographic image. And he thought this was absolutely hilarious. Um, uh, I, I think I think that uh, work must have been like a dangerous thing for a long time, because I think that uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, I think that employees had little protection and they were very, very powerless in comparison to those in power. Oh, absolutely. But it's interesting that there was a kind of erotics of capitalism that flourished Mm -hmm. in the 90s that 
that quickly was squashed down, but it was definitely there that the idea of freedom includes yes. the freedom to sexually exploit other people. Um, but uh, don't forget we had censorship until 89. So uh, I think that uh, a lot of like freedom of exploring one's desires uh, was seen as uh, like a reaction to that. Uh, and I think that uh, some of these phenomena uh, were positive that basically people, uh, uh, because uh, like when sexuality ceases to be a taboo subject, uh, I, I think that, uh, well, a lot more can be more freely discussed. Uh, and obviously it was, it was very, very quickly uh, I think that it was toned down by the fact that uh, the politicians in Trzeciarzeczpolita uh, uh, turned out to be actually very, very conservative. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, well, the, the, this uh, like freedom of exploring one's desires, but on equal terms for everybody, which included also like non-heterosexual uh, uh, like relationships and fascinations, because I I think that it was um, like Polish artist Karol Radziszewski. He was uh, uh, interested in uh, like LGBT press after eighty nine, and he said that nineteen ninety or ninety one was the best year for that because I think that eight titles more lifestyle than porn have arrived on the market. So there was a huge niche and people really wanted to talk about subjects that were previously considered either taboo or they were subject to censorship. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that there's this kind of reaction against repression and, and it, it leads people to kind of burst out in new directions that eventually then become censored in other ways, right? That are kind of socially censored. Yes. Um, one of the other topics you've written a lot about, this is maybe a funny a funny lead in to this question, but one of the other topics that you've written about is kitchens yeah. um, and, and the, and the transformation of the Polish kitchen is our kitchens also about an archeology span of desire Are kitchens places where desire and a kind of eroticism gets worked out. I think, I think that definitely uh, kitchens can be objects of desire and they can be also like objects of display and distinction. And I think that uh, a lot of lifestyle focuses there. So I believe that, uh, that very, very much so that um, it, is, it is an interesting thing how they have been uh, like uh, even from uh, like the purely architectural point of view, mm -hmm. like whether a kitchen is linked to uh, a living room or not. Mm. So uh, for, for example, that how much you show to, to which extent it belongs to the private zone and to which extent uh, it is shown to the guests and which part uh, of your life is taking place there. Oh, that is what one of the things that's really struck me about changing kitchen design in Poland is that it's now become a, a public space where guests sort of are hustled in and they sit in the kitchen and um, and and 
30 years ago, that was not the case. The kitchen was a place where the woman went into and out of serving guests in the main room, but guests didn't go in the kitchen. Yes, and kitchens used to be really very narrow as well. In the 70s and 90s blocks, they were like this really, really narrow, uh, like tiny zones where I think one person would fit in or maybe two. And I think that there was no, no place for a table really. Yeah, so it wasn't a place you would hang out. It was a service zone, like a yes. like a bathroom, not not a place to hang out and 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 have friends over. And it's interesting to me how much the the food culture in Poland has become about a kind of sensuality, and it's focused on home kitchens in a lot of important ways. Very much so. If you uh, look around and how many. Uh... But obviously, in the recent decade, especially, you have uh, many more pre-prepared uh, frozen or uh, like microwavable foods. But uh, many of them are called like granny's pierogi or uh, like grandpa's soup. And uh, many of them like refer to uh, like the safety of the home. Mm -hmm. So in addition to a kind of exploratory erotics of food, there's also a nostalgia of food, a comfort zone of food that people yes. are retreating into. Yes, I think I think that the comfort zone is a very, uh, a very, very strong tendency and probably even more so than while well, recent decade has seen uh, a big uh, spike in like uh, demand for diets and fitness and uh, like tailored foods uh, to like uh, I don't know particular lifestyle uh, related mm -hmm. to sports for example or like particular uh, food demands but for me a very interesting uh, sign uh of uh, like this need for wholesomeness in Polish culture again was the fact that we have a very very popular um, like uh, chef and vegan chef and uh, food blogger Marta mm -hmm. Dymek Jadłonomia uh, who uh, published recently her third book and it's called Jadłonomia po Polsku and uh, it contains uh, like grandma style recipes, but all of them made fully vegan. Uh, so I think that uh, this is where uh, like uh, aspirational uh, middle-class lifestyles uh, like move very, very strongly into this tendency of wholesomeness. Uh, this is the kind of vegetarianism I like because this is the one uh, I have learned to know when I gave up on meat uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you keep bringing up words like sincerity, wholesomeness, mm. that people are seeking a kind of authenticity and straightforwardness that they didn't feel they got over the last 20 years. I believe so. I very strongly believe so. And I can notice among people in private contact, in uh, in, in professional contacts as well, uh, I see uh, a very, very strong, uh, like a sign of relief uh, whenever people realize that they don't have to act. 
and I think that it has something to do with trust that uh, when people don't uh, believe anymore that they have to be very cautious all the time because somebody wants to uh, take advantage of them, mm-hmm. then uh, they can afford to be trustful and sincere. And for me, it is a really big achievement. This is a big achievement of uh, Polish society because I, I think I think that uh, we had to, uh, not due to our fault, but due to circumstances, uh, because because of like the competition forced up uh, on people by the realities of capitalism, then uh, people had to be very mistrustful. And well, it actually began before 89. Uh, when I read uh, like various social studies dedicated to the anomie of the late 80s, then uh, people who were like really ruthless and uh, had completely like no remorse in taking advantage of others uh, or by uh, acting unfair, then these were the ones who quickly got to the top. It's interesting that you're echoing the same sort of things that were said in the early 90s, right? Like I'm thinking of this famous text of Czesław Miłosz, which talks about the need to have two faces under socialism, that you always had to conceal what you really felt and what you really thought. And now you're saying, well, the 90s, which were supposed to liberate us from that, in fact, led us to hide how we really felt even more. We had to hide ourselves even more. And so I think you're really putting your finger on something that's not uniquely Polish, but maybe global in this moment, which is this great hunger for authenticity, honesty, straightforwardness, uh, trust. These are really important topics now in the post-Trump era to start thinking about. Yes, I, I think I think this might be the case because I, I think I think that uh, and it's a very difficult subject as well because obviously, uh, while uh, people who have been disappointed are more prone uh, to like spare their trust until they know somebody really well or not at all. And I think I think that uh, uh, having experienced like human to human hostility in daily life, uh, uh, I wouldn't like to live through that again. I, as an anecdote, I can tell you that when I uh, got my first job, like regular job, mm-hmm. uh, uh, then I remember how surprised my mom was uh, that when when she learned that I got this job like perfectly legally via employment process, mm-hmm. not by uh, corrupting anybody or by knowing somebody, but basically like going through employment process because people got uh, got used to a completely different reality where there was uh, well legal procedures were just the facade were on the front and uh, people who believed them were naive mm-hmm. while uh, those who uh, well, were uh, and and everybody had to be like crafty enough uh, to navigate their life and yeah uh, i remember those days when when mm-hmm. was how you sort of wended your way 
twistingly through the world and you had to know people who knew people and yes and, and, and again, the idea of things being what they seem things mm -hmm. actually being what they look like is is something we keep hearing over and over that people want things to be like they look like yes yes it is it is uh, uh, uh for for me uh it's an incredible relief it's an incredible relief because i'm i'm, I'm strongly afraid of like mistrust in society well, let me let me ask you one final question. You know, you were trained as an anthropologist. Is yes. what you're doing now anthropology? Uh, I have to say, and with certain pride, that uh, I can tell that uh, even if I'm not working as an anthropologist, then I'm at least using the skills I have learned during my studies uh in various jobs so for example uh i have run um last year a podcast dedicated to folklore and i'm gonna be uh, like the folklore in daily life uh in the context of uh conspiracy theories uh and uh like various common commonly shared uh beliefs especially related to health uh so uh this is uh like one one example and i'm i'm uh, gonna have a webinar soon dedicated to the same subject and obviously uh, uh all the books that i'm writing on my own uh so the holog and veroba and uh another one i'm i'm working on right now which is dedicated to irony between these cuts recently uh, are uh, I think I think that they they owe a lot to anthropology and uh, when we were working on uh, the book of love with Margareta Halber well she's a philosopher uh, and an artist and uh, I have applied my uh, researchers head <laughs> That's that's wonderful. Olga Drenda, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.